The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Siegel explains the impact of this decision. Quote, what was to rise out of this pivotal moment would, in the following months and years, produce something close to a revolution in a country's awareness of and response to child abuse and the puzzled wrestling by lawyers and doctors in Judge Archie Jingold's courtroom were events unfolding just as this revolution was coming to life. Dr. Garby's inability to explain Lois's actions in standard psychiatric terms had a distinct context. End quote. From A Death in White Bear Lake by Barry Siegel. Welcome back, Murder Bookies, to the conclusion of A Death in White Bear Lake by Barry Siegel, Episode 52, Second Cast. Your loss is our gain. A special shout out to my Tennessee listeners who have been tuning in in mass. I cannot appreciate you more. All right, getting right to it, there is a lot to cover, but here is your reminder. Make sure you've listened to the previous two episodes, because I can't swear it's going to make sense if you haven't. And the warning. This is an intense dive into some specific cases of child abuse and the societal and systemic changes that occurred in the U.S. We began with the death of Dennis Jurgens in 1965, clearly beaten to death by his adoptive mother, which went unprosecuted. We saw his parents adopt four more children with dire consequences. And then the revolution in medicine, battered child syndrome, becoming a medical fact from across the societal spectrum, repeating a pattern of abuse on their children that they learned themselves as children. Everything would change on March 13, 1971, when a six-month-old baby boy, Lance Running, arrived at the emergency room in St. Paul. A pale lance had a bruise on his forehead, wasn't breathing, eyes fixed and dilated. Emergency resuscitation was successful, with Lance hooked up to a respirator. Head of pediatrics, Dr. Homer Venters, noted a skull fracture on the x-rays. This baby's brain was hemorrhaging. The parent's story. In the morning, Lance had some juice and seemed sleepy and then the parents found him not breathing. Okay, hard stop. There is not a chance in hell that this wasn't abuse. With Dr. Henry Kemp's seminars, the publicity, and new laws, Dr. Venters acted. This was, quote, a brain injury secondary to battered baby syndrome, end quote. Lieutenant Carolyn Bailey arrived, interviewing Lance's mother, Lynn Running, and the father, Danny Loss. Ramsey County Attorney Paul Lindholm, yeah, the same guy who once again would decide if a child's death warranted prosecution, looked over the file. Lindholm turned to his expert attorney on child abuse, John Tuohy, who, if you recall, 
had wrangled a free ski trip when he attended the Kempfrey Conference in Denver with Judge Archie Jingold. John Toohey thought they might have a good case. Yet just recently, there was another. James A. Seward was charged with the murder of Patricia Lynn Clifton, the 10-month-old daughter of his 17-year-old wife. Patricia had died of a skull fracture, ruptured liver, and crushed ribs. Seward was acquitted on the charges. But while optimistic, the lost case would not be an easy one. On April 6, the Ramsey County Grand Jury indicted Daniel A. Loss for third-degree murder and first-degree manslaughter, with Loss pleading not guilty. The prosecution rested on the concept of the battered child syndrome, a medical syndrome, not yet a legal one. Right, this kind of establishing legal precedent also happened when DNA was first introduced as a scientific concept, not yet a legal one. What John Tuway needed to prove was threefold. First, battered child syndrome itself, the type of injuries, fractured skull, and the resulting subdural hematoma and bruising. Second, the battering parent's profile, immaturity, instability, and poor emotional control. And lastly, the strict circumstantial evidence, such as a parent alone and injuries that did not match the explanation. 20-year-old Danny Loss was known for his temper, extreme emotional responses to frustration and annoyance, impatience, and being too free with his hands. Tui would present the whole cycle of child abuse, meaning Loss's background from childhood to present. Three months later, at the trial in Judge John W. Graff's courtroom, Tui asked Lance's mother, Lynn Running, if she observed Danny Loss with his parents as defense attorney John Wilde Jr. jumped to his feet, demanding to know what this had to do with Lance Running's death. Wilde argued before the judge, quote, a doctor testifying about battering parents is just not material. If doctors testify about the presence of a child in this so-called syndrome, they would be giving their opinion as to guilt. That would deny due process. Whether a particular injury was intentionally inflicted is a question for the jury, and it was the entire purpose of the trial, end quote. After a nerve-wracking recess, Judge Graff returned, overruling Wilde's objections. So ask away, Tui. Lynn Running testified to Danny's temper, anger, emotions, nerves, that he held the baby roughly and grew agitated when Lance cried. Tui and Dr. Ventner then walked the jury through battered child syndrome point by point, stressing the pattern of physical abuse to a child and the pattern of behavior among the batterers. Then they tied the general concept to the specifics regarding Lance running. Quote, the injuries we saw in the child could not have happened by accident. End quote. Tui rested. Defense attorney John Wilde Jr was confident that this new legal mumbo-jumbo wouldn't hold up, and there was zero direct evidence to implicate Daniel Loss. Jurors debated for seven hours, returning a verdict that found Daniel Loss guilty of first-degree manslaughter, justice for Lance running. Appeals were filed before the Minnesota Supreme Court, 
who upheld the conviction. Critically, now battered child syndrome had legal standing in court, a judicial earthquake taking place. Dr. Venter was then inundated by requests for guidance in battered child syndrome cases from New York, Virginia, Connecticut. There would be far less looking the other way and doing nothing about it. Enter Jerry Sherwood. Right, as I told you in episode 50, at 17, new mother Jerry Sherwood was forced to give up baby boy Dennis. Later, Jerry married Dennis's father, having three more children together. Divorcing, when her firstborn son reached adulthood, Jerry sought him out and discovered that Dennis had died as a toddler. After a fruitless search for Dennis's grave, Jerry went to White Bear Lake's Lake Mortuary and asked the man with the long, craggy face, Jim Hansa, if he had buried a little boy, Dennis Jurgens, in 1965. Jim had, and he pulled his old files for her, which held a few old newspaper clippings. Quote, the autopsy on the body of the three-and-a-half-year-old Dennis Jurgens showed he died of peritonitis caused by a ruptured bowel. Dr. Thomas W. Votel, Ramsey County Coroner, said today, the body also bore multiple injuries and bruises, end quote. Jerry felt her heart dropping, crying, quote, oh my God, they beat my baby to death, end quote. Heading back to the cemetery, she asked the groundskeeper for help, with him leading her to the right grave. He told a surprise Jerry that, quote, Dennis was his sister's son end quote, and asked who she was, with Jerry replying, the birth mother. Barry Siegel writes, quote, that boy was so happy and spirited. The man began waxing almost lyrical. My sister Lois loved him and gave him everything, musical instruments, tap shoes, whatever. Jerry stared hard. What about the numerous bruises and injuries I read about in the paper, end quote. Dennis's uncle turned and walked away. Then Jerry called Lois Jurgens. Oh, that must have been a phone call. Lois spoke at length about Dennis being happy and healthy, not like when he first arrived with worms and lice. Uh, I don't remember anything about worms and lice. Do you? No. To Lois, Dennis's death was a conundrum. He had bruises all over with no idea what happened. Jerry asked for a photo of Dennis with Lois agreeing to send one. But after six weeks, no photo arrived, and Jerry called her back, finding out the phone number was changed and unlisted. With many difficulties facing her family at the time, Jerry let the matter lie for five years. Now, in 1986, with renewed vigor, Jerry began digging, getting a copy of Dennis's death certificate, with the cause of death deferred. Jim Essling, the assistant county coroner at the time, explained that Jerry needed a court order if she wanted to access any more. So, Jerry called the White Bear Lake Police Department, leaving a message for Lieutenant Buzz Harvey. In the previous 22 years, with retirements and promotions, the White Bear PD had changed. Pete Kralchuk, he became the chief of police, retiring in 1983. Lieutenant Jerome Zerwas, he went out on disability for a bum knee but not before he sued the town for discrimination. Now, 1986, 
Pete Karlchuk filled Detective Ron Meehan in on what their 1965 investigation yielded, and that he and Bob Vanderwist left the case with the Ramsey County attorney, Paul Lindholm, who chose not to prosecute. Reviewing the file, the county medical examiner, Dr. Michael McGee, read the description of multiple bruises and a pus-filled abdomen with a sinking feeling. He revised the mode of death, notifying the county attorney. This was a homicide. Jerry Sherwood then looped in journalist Brian Bonner to keep pressure on the department that she did not trust. When Bonner called Lois Jurgens, now 61 years old, 11 years after she lost custody of all her children, Lois was surprised. This all, quote, seems really far-fetched, end quote. Nowadays, Lois stayed in bed, her formerly ordered, admired, immaculate home, now a complete horror show, boxes, paper, and clutter. Robert Jurgens had maintained contact with his parents, Harold and Lois, over the years, desiring to put the nightmare behind him. Robert felt the need for family and roots, and the Jurgens were all he had. After a number of foster homes, Robert had turned to drugs, dropping out of high school. Washington County intervened, with Robert going into rehab. At 17, he was drug-free and passed his high school equivalency exam. Now, in 1986, Robert was a police officer in Crookston, a small town just across the border from Grand Forks, living there with his wife, Joanne, and their three-year-old son, Joshua. They even let Harold and Lois babysit once for three weeks. Right, I can't say I would have done that. But I think Robert is driven to help, to help save people, to rescue people, doing what he couldn't do as a child. When Lois called Robert about Bonner's newspaper article, Robert felt sick. All right, he knew something big had to be stirring for this to be reopened. He had been told his brother got sick and went to heaven. But Robert always wondered about what happened to Dennis. Robert called Jim Essling at the medical examiner's office learning about Jerry Sherwood and his brother's murder. Robert tried to speak to his parents, but by then, Lois and Harold lawyered up and were tight-lipped even with him. Memories began surfacing. Robert remembered Dennis being hit and trying to run away. He was conflicted, though. Today, Robert's relationship with his parents were good, and he wanted to preserve this. Really, what should he do? As the media's interest exploded, Greg Kindle joined the White Bear PD investigation. Robert told Greg that Lois normally punished by pulling hair, ears, slapping, spanking with spatulas. He recalled Dennis falling down the stairs, landing in the basement, being yelled at and slapped. What did Robert recall from April 11, 1965, when Dennis died? There were fragments of memory, scary thunder and lightning, dad with Dennis in the bathroom, Screaming in the bedroom in the morning, going into Dennis's room, Robert stood in the doorway, watching his mom shaking Dennis, yelling. She was very upset, angry, pounding on Dennis's back, who never made a sound. Robert believed that dad in the bathroom and Dennis being unresponsive were all linked. He added, quote, that's what's pissing me off right now. Hey, this is a homicide. I mean, they're telling you that Dennis was killed. Without a doubt, without even a doubt, she's the one that killed Dennis, end quote. Robert looked at his fellow officers. Why hadn't this been prosecuted? And Greg sighed, we're going to find out. 
A reluctant Ramsey County assistant prosecutor, Melinda Mindy Elledge, was assigned to the Jurgen case. After reviewing all the police, welfare, and medical files, she met with a distraught, crying Jerry Sherwood, who demanded action. If it didn't happen by December, Jerry vowed to march on City Hall. Now, years ago, another prosecutor had worked with Jerry on a robbery case, and he now stopped by to reassure Jerry. This was Clayton Robinson Jr. Jerry complained to Clayton that Elledge wouldn't share information with her. He gathered his thoughts and explained, quote, the present county attorneys are not the same people who failed to prosecute in 1965, and I am offering my personal assurances that this case will be handled properly, end quote. Jerry relented. She'd quiet down, but only if Clayton Robinson Jr. was put on the case. All right, now Clayton is in a pickle and had to go face Mindy Elledge, who was furious that he was honing in on her case. This wouldn't be an easy case, though. Finding witnesses 20 years later to re-interview, hearing stories change, some denying they ever said anything about seeing abuse, it would be a daunting task. Lois's cousin, Sharon Kopp, reneged, saying she hadn't seen any clothespins on Dennis's penis, no hitting, no blows, aggravating Greg Kindle with Ron Meehan kicking him under the table. Just let him talk. Let them tell their stories. Lloyd and Donna Zerwas, now in Arizona, left the area under a shadow of familial condemnation after testifying against Lois at the custody hearing. Now, Lloyd and Donna hesitated, believing that too much time had actually passed for a prosecution. Assuring them that something would happen this time, Ron Meehan managed to convince them into cooperating. Huge task finding the four Houghton children the Georges had adopted. Mahan and Kindle delivered search warrants to the Washington County and Lutheran Social Services, getting the files on Renee, Grant, Michael, and Ricky Houghton. Ron endured a lamenting, self-pitying call to their natural father, Louis Wayne Houghton, who finally gave them leads on the kids. But this elation was overshadowed. The November 4th edition of the Minneapolis Star and Tribune carried Dennis Cassano's interview with three of the four Houghton kids. Ron was mortified. Renee, Mike, and Ricky told of the beatings, slappings, Lois's tirades, are inspecting the house with a white glove. And to make it worse, on TV that night, there was Renee, now 26, sparkling eyes, telling a KSTP reporter, that no, she hadn't been interviewed by the police yet, who really now looked incompetent. Ron Meehan knew Jerry Sherwood was going to lose her mind, rightfully, as the phone rang with Jerry demanding to know why they hadn't interviewed those kids yet. With the media flaring up, Lois called Robert, so angry at Renee, quote, that lying bitch, she looks like a little whore on TV. I'm not taking this sitting down. I'm going to get stuff on her, end quote. Lois shifted topics quickly, asking Robert if she'd ever used a white glove. Robert confirmed that, yes, she had once or twice. He took this opportunity and he asked his mom about Dennis. Had Dennis had peritonitis and bruises? Lois said that Dennis was always falling down. He had a medical problem with feeling pain. And she told him, quote, I remember hearing a real loud noise. 
And there was Dennis laying at the bottom of the steps. I ran down and picked him up. I got a little excited, end quote, which confirmed Robert's memory of the event. Quote, God dang, Ma, what's weird is I remember Dennis talking to Dad in the bathroom, and he seemed fine. And an hour later, we find him dead in the crib. That's strange as hell, end quote. The only thing Lois could think was Dennis slipping the night before on the wet concrete floor in the basement. He asked her, was it the fall down the steps? No, no, that happened about a week before he died, as her story shifted once again. Robert noted that Lois felt no remorse, no guilt, had no tears. But still probing, Robert said, quote, you're pretty close with Uncle Jerome. I'm sure you've talked to him about this matter, end quote with Lois confirming that Jerome couldn't believe what was happening. Now, this segued into Lois talking about her childhood, how she and her siblings were taken out to the barn to be whipped and beaten, and every one of them turned out fine. When Robert brought up the scalding of Dennis in his hospitalization, Lois flatly said she didn't want to talk about it. But reminiscing, she said Dennis wouldn't eat. He was so hyper, he only wanted his bottle. The boy had worms and couldn't be toilet trained. Well, with her probing fingers and use of clamps, no, he couldn't be toilet trained. Good Lord, Lois. Robert realized he wasn't a hyper kid and he had done everything right. While Dennis was the opposite, active, rambunctious, high-spirited. And Dennis took the brunt of punishment even when Robert did screw up. Lois asked, unbelievably asked, quote, Robert, we never mistreated you, did we? You can't honestly say we ever abused you, end quote. And she took offense at his response. Robert said, quote, I guess not. I'm still alive walking and talking, end quote. With that, Harold arrived home. Robert brought up the newspaper article with Lois going off again as Harold cut in, quote, we're done talking now. That's enough. We got to keep our mouths shut, end quote. Robert said they were making him feel badly being shut out. I mean, he was their son, but he did understand the attorney had told them to keep quiet. Harold wavered, quote, I'll call you back and talk, but, but right now I can't say anything, end quote. Robert then called Greg Kindle, telling him of this conversation and that this was most likely the most he'd ever hear from Lois about that night. Insightfully, Robert told them of Lois's childhood, quote, now I see a pattern of her being abused as a child, and I can see some of the reason as to how this got carried over. Her ability to do this to Dennis is because it happened to her. This is what she got accustomed to, and this is how she was going to reprimand Dennis. And when she lost her temper, she reverted, end quote. Robert also informed Greg that Jerome Zerwas was involved in all of this. Landing in Atlanta, Georgia, Meehan and Kendall met with Renee Howerton first, who seemed both vulnerable and tough. Fleeing the Georgians at 15, she had tried living with her former foster mother, but the fit just wasn't right anymore. In 11th grade, she and a boyfriend began living together and had a child, now four years old. They drifted apart with Renee going looking for her biological mother. Now, 11 years later, Renee remembered that Lois was, quote, a damn raving maniac. The abuse was an everyday thing with her. She'd throw in our faces that she was made to do this as a child, end quote. 
Harold did try to intervene, but he just wasn't much of a man, as she called him a whooped puppy, and she blamed him as much as Lois for it all. Brothers Mike, age 23, and Ricky, 21, arrived to be interviewed, apparently needing a tranquilizer to revisit this. Siegel explains that where Renee was seething with anger, her brothers were blunted and fogged. At 13 and 11 years old, Mike and Ricky were returned to foster mother, Sherry Riley's home in Kentucky, joining Renee. Like her, they found it very difficult to adjust and left going south to look for their biological dad. All the Houghtons seemed lost, haunted by painful memories of violence. Afterwards, Greg Kindle had his first cigarette in four years. Back in Minnesota, June Bowl greeted investigators, discussing the difficulty of raising a rebellious grant after he escaped from the Jurgens. But June was reluctant to say more, as this was a family matter. Her husband's elderly mother was Lois's father's sister, so the great aunt, who lived with June. And June was afraid of Lois. They reassured her this was not 1965. Gradually opening up, June told them about Lois's psychiatric record and her use of tranquilizers. June wasn't fond of Harold, given his failure to protect the kids. If you recall, she had once confronted Harold, told him to make sure he protected Robert when he was returned back to their custody, and clearly he had failed. June recounted his story, though. She was babysitting for Harold while Lois was in the hospital, and when he came to get the kids, they wound up staying for dinner. As the nine kids played, out of the blue, Harold began speaking of when Dennis died, saying, quote, I wasn't home when Dennis died. I was doing electrical work for some friends in Wisconsin when Lois called. She called and said, Dennis and I have been at it again, and I knew what that meant. So I put my things together and I went right home. And when I got there, I put Dennis in bed with me. In the middle of the night, Dennis had to go potty and I took him to the bathroom. And he said he was done. And I looked at the pot and there was nothing there. Then I took him back to bed with me. And in the morning, he was dead, end quote. All right, this actually fits with the symptoms of peritonitis. Having a bowel movement is unlikely. June felt that Harold was confiding in her, you know, telling her that Lois did it. And thanks to June, Ron and Greg now had confirmation that Lois was home alone with Dennis when he received his fatal wound. They also spoke with 25-year-old Grant Houghton Bowles at Max Diner in St. Paul. Although he hadn't been formally adopted by June and Richard Bowles, he had taken their last name. Greg was sensitive but skittish about speaking to the police, downing coffee after coffee. Life with Lois and Harold had left him needing psychiatric help in coping with his experiences, although he had tried to block it all out. He married, had a child, and divorced, although he still thought highly of his ex. Now, Grant was working in a hospital as a nurse's aide. Prosecutor Mindy Elledge and Ron Meehan spoke with now 68-year-old Dr. Roy Peterson. Peterson didn't recall a great amount about the Jurgens, but he did recall Dennis scalding his genitals. It was unusual, and why weren't Lois's hands burnt as well? told you I asked the same question. He went on saying, quote, there was no child abuse reporting system in place in those days, end quote. When he arrived at the Jurgens, the doctor examined Dennis's face and chest. 
enough to pronounce death. The cause was up to the medical examiner. The men refreshed Dr. Peterson's memory, asking poignant questions. Who called him to the Jurgens? What peritonitis caused extreme pain over many hours? What had caused the peritonitis? A punch to the stomach? Fall down the stairs? Heel of a woman's shoe? Peterson stumbled, trying to respond, and Ron feared the doctor would keel over from a heart attack. Dr. Woodbury's autopsy report was a complete revelation to Peterson, who confirmed only a severe blow to the abdomen would cause a bowel rupture like that. However, Peterson did not recall ever speaking with Dr. Woodburn. On being handed the photos of Dennis's body, quote, Peterson's face seemed to collapse as he studied the photos. He looked shocked and sad. My God, he said, this is awful, end quote. The doctor admitted that the blood-red nose was not caused by a cold. The scars on the abdomen appeared to be caused by a belt, maybe a stick. The crescents behind the ears were consistent with fingernail gouges, and Dennis was malnourished. Could he give them any insight into the Jurgens? Peterson replied, quote, they seemed like very nice people to me, end quote. The child cousins of Dennis, now adults, also stepped up to help. Lloyd and Donna Zerwas were living a good life in Arizona, away from the harassment and threats of Lois. They told Greg and Ron they'd babysat Dennis for a week in 1964, with Lois supplying baby food for him because he didn't know how to chew, even though he had a full set of teeth. But Donna never used the baby food. Instead, Dennis ate the same thing their kids did, steak, hamburger, french fries. He never gagged. And Dennis never wet the bed either, although Lois warned that he would. On being picked up, Dennis was happy to see his dad, but he wet the seat of Harold's truck when they left to go home. Right, that is an intense fear response by a two-year-old. Whoa. Donna and Lloyd told investigators they first heard of Dennis's death that Palm Sunday morning about 7.15. They were dressing for church. But wait, how could it be that early when the police weren't called until like 10 a.m.? Big Red Mountain. They recalled telling this to Kralchuk and Vanderwist back then, too. And Donna had beseeched Lois to give Dennis back before it was too late. Lois refused because it would impact Robert and they'd never be able to adopt more children. She recalled Lois showing her Dennis's beautiful room, nice furniture, rows of neat stuffed animals, with Dennis lying spread eagle in his crib, hands and feet tied to the post. Lois had explained, quote, when he's untied, he gets up and touches everything in the bedroom, end quote. Oh my God, this woman has a completely twisted view of motherhood. Pristine children, sitting quietly in pristine rooms, perfectly obedient, everything in order. Delusional, completely. Ron Meehan was tasked with speaking with his former lieutenant, Jerome Zerwas. They had stayed friendly since he went out on disability, with Ron saying to him, quote, God, Jerry, some of the things we've seen, why the hell didn't you do something? End quote. Jerome denied he'd ever seen any abuse. Ron pressed Jerome, telling him there was information from Pete and Bob that you told him that you were going to do everything you could to stop the successful investigation of his sister. Leaning forward, 
eyeball to eyeball. And angry Jerome said, quote, that's a dirty lie, mister. I'll tell that to their faces. I'll take a polygraph. That's a dirty lie, mister. End quote. Ron let it go because, unfortunately, the statute of limitations for this kind of shenanigans was long past. Better to keep the focus on the real case, Lois. December 1986, Jerain Park, a Napa, California psychotherapist, received a phone call from the White Bear Lake police, one she always knew was coming. Back in 1964, her name was Jerain Rechdahl, and she was working as a Ramsey County caseworker. Hearing about the new investigation, she felt nauseous. Flying into St. Paul, Jerain met with Mindy Eldridge and Clayton Robinson, and she spoke of her guilt. Greg Kindle located county caseworker Pete Crago, now a minister. Crago barely recalled the Houghton children's adoption, but his memory improved as they spoke. Quote, we had reason to believe that it was a calculated risk in favor of the children. We knew something wasn't right, but I don't know how much we knew. The vague fact that Lois had received some psychiatric care and the whole question of whether she was responsible for the death of the child, obviously, if she had been, she would have been charged, end quote. Ruth Wydell was still at the State Department of Public Welfare in St. Paul. Remember, initially, Ruth had adamantly refused to approve the Jurgens' adoption, but said now, quote, all the information we had was on the fence. What do you do? It was only an accusation, end quote. She remembered seeing some newspaper clipping about the Horton kids forming a musical group, which had made her feel they had done the right thing. A new Brian Bonner article, co-authored with Linda Cole, ran in the Sunday St. Paul Pioneer Dispatch on December 21, 1986. Child's fatal abuse was known, but ignored. Oof. He'd spoken to a few Zerwes family members including former Washington caseworker Carol Felix, coroner Tom Votel, and the current medical examiner. The heart of the story came from Renee Houghton's records. She had dictated them to the reporter, which included Carol Felix's seven-page summary of facts surrounding Dennis's death and the Houghton adoptions, and Robert. But, interesting, the name Jurgens had not been identified since there were no charges filed. So all this news coverage never used the name Dennis, Lois, or Harold Jurgens. yet everyone in White Bear Lake knew exactly who this was about. They all knew. Now, this new article triggered Lois, who called Robert again. Had he seen it, Robert thought she sounded rather cavalier, even as they began to reminisce. Did Robert remember his and Dennis's little sailor suits and the tap dance classes? Robert pushed her a little. Quote, I remember you, mom, coming into Dennis's room and picking him up and seeing him limp. I remember Dr. Peterson coming with a brown bag, end quote. Harold opened up now, repeating his story about taking Dennis to the bathroom. He was always bothered by the fact that Dennis was perfectly normal. He is never screaming like he was in pain or anything. Well, after the screaming was beaten out of him, Harold, right, this is called learned helplessness. 
It's a psychological state that occurs after repetitive stressful situations like cyclical abuse when one now believes that he or she cannot control or change the situation. You accept that you're helpless and you no longer try to escape. You just endure even if the opportunity to end it happens. Dennis has learned he's helpless. Anything he could do is useless. In the article, when Lois read about Renee saying Lois had made her burn her sanitary napkins, Lois began to cry. That was how her mother made her do it. All the girls had to do it that way. All right, well, this got me a little bit because Lois just didn't know better. This is what she was taught. This is how it was done. This is what girls did. After two hours of talking, Robert broke the news. He had been subpoenaed to testify before a grand jury on January 28th in Ramsey County. Complete news to his parents. Harold told him to tell the truth. Now, for weeks upon weeks, the prosecutors had lost their minds trying to find the transcript from Robert Durgan's custody hearing. Now, critically, this had the power to refresh memories, allowing the dead to speak and give Lois and Harold's accounting. And the prosecution was wrestling with another problem. The Woodburn autopsy report was really inadequate. Mindy Elledge realized they'd have to have Dennis's body exhumed. Medical examiner Dr. McGee was concerned about what they'd find after 22 years. Mortician Jim Hansa was still the funeral director at Lake Mortuary. He told Dr. McGee he remembered every detail the inordinate amount of makeup needed to try to hide the bruises, how he'd put Dennis's organs in a plastic bag at the foot of the casket. The body should be in good shape. Without bacteria, no oxygen, there's no decomp. Oh, and he had used a really strong solution. Barry Siegel writes, quote, It was as if the funeral director had foreseen the day when someone would come looking. End quote. It looked like a normal funeral when they removed Dennis's coffin from the frozen earth. Mindy, Jim Hansa, and Jim Aisling opted to wait around as Dr. McGee began. On the table, quote, was a small child in perfect, if weathered shape, like an ancient man preserved in time. The body was mummified, but remarkably intact, end quote. McGee was transfixed by the tiny face marred by bluish-black, brownish-black, reddish and green bruises. McGee saw all the wounds that I've described previously and eventually found the small oval hole in the bowel, an ileum with brown-black hemorrhage, the killer, still easy to see 22 years later. Through this hole, fecal matter entered the abdomen, causing death and they were ready for reburial. The grand jury began on January 28, 1987. Robert Durgins actually testified in private two weeks earlier to avoid excessive media coverage, with three of the jurors crying and wanting to indict right then and there. Mindy calmed them down, explaining there was more evidence to hear. Riddled with cancer, retired Detective Bob Vanderwist testified that Chief Wayne Armstrong told him to stop investigating in 65 and that he'd kept the case files in his office 
as they'd received some interference from Lieutenant Jerome Zerwas. Pete Kralchuk corroborated Bob's testimony, with Jerome denying all of it. Donna and Lloyd Zerwas testified among the other assorted relatives. Then, Clayton called Harold Jurgens to the stand. As Minnesota law didn't recognize accessory after the fact in a 22-year-old homicide, Harold could only be tried for murder. Did his passivity and non-interference equate to murder? The prosecution thought not. Harold had suggested he would take the fifth, but an immunity deal allowed him to testify. Interesting, he wanted immunity. The prosecution's strategy was to prevent the defense from raising reasonable doubt that it was Harold, not Lois, who injured Dennis. The injury had occurred 24 to 48 hours before death, so locking down Harold's story before the grand jury was risky, but necessary. And after a lot of I cannot say yes or no's, Harold testified he went to work on Friday, contradicting the 1965 police report and June Bull's memory. He said he left Saturday to go to Wisconsin, delaying his departure. Harold also claimed he struck Dennis Saturday before he left, trying to cloud the issue as to who caused what. However, it didn't matter to the grand jury which issued a true bill before Judge David Marston at 9.30 a.m. January 30th. Lois was indicted for murder. Speaking to the press, a tearful Jerry Sherwood said, quote, I honestly believe that if I hadn't tried to find my son, this wouldn't be here today. We wouldn't have an indictment, end quote. Prosecutor Tom Foley said, quote, I think the entire system failed. I think you have to look at what took place back there. There was not the recognition of the child abuse problems of today. We're much more sensitive and much more aware, end quote. Oh, Lois pled not guilty. When defense attorney Doug Thompson received the prosecution case files, the photos of Dennis's body alone destroyed his strategy. They were going to have to admit that Lois abused her child. But still, nothing directly linked Lois's behavior to the ruptured bowel. The trouble for Thompson was not a single pathologist would provide an alternative explanation under oath. All Thompson had was Lois is crazy, the insanity defense, which is rarely successful, like less than 1% of the cases, as you know, we've talked about before. Then People Magazine published its story. A tale of two Minnesota mothers, one seeking the truth behind their son's death, the other stands accused. It was largely a biography of Jerry Sherwood, but the prosecution was rocked. In the article, Jerry says in 1980, she'd phoned Lois and, quote, I asked her what kind of little boy he was, and she said he had been a good, happy little boy. She didn't say much else except that when he was found, he had black blotches all over his body and they didn't know where the wounds came from, end quote. Mindy and Clayton had no idea Lois and Jerry had ever spoken directly about Dennis's death. Now, bracing for the wrath of Jerry Sherwood, Mindy broke it to her that she would have to testify about this phone conversation. And as a witness, she couldn't attend the trial. What erupted from Jerry caused everyone in the room to shrink back. 
she thundered, very upset, quote, God damn you, you want me out of the courtroom, end quote. And it took a while, but eventually they got down to interviewing her about this conversation. Over her life, Lois had painted contrasting pictures about her childhood, from a beautiful farm life with animals and a big loving family, to an impoverished and deprived childhood with tyrannical parents who beat and abused their children in a barn battling regularly. Lois and girlhood friend Irene Balzart parted ways when they were 14 years old. But Irene recalled a conversation with Lois. Her, quote, elderly mother had come to visit her that day, and it seems that another sister had just told their mother that Lois was raped by their father. Lois was upset because her mother had been told she didn't want to hurt her. Lois said to me, oh, I was so upset. Why bring that up now? The damage has been done. Why bring that up now? End quote. Now, to be fair, most of Lois's siblings deny this dark version of their childhood. They, they were terribly poor, but never abused. So what is and isn't the case, I don't know. But frank fact, one third to a half of those abused kids grow up to be abusive. That's a fact. Does not mean all become abusive. But if you are abused, I beg you to get psychological counseling. The immediate wounds heal, the unseen ones can fester. Stopping the generational cycle is critical. There are links to resources about abuse for children, for adults, on my blog, www.murdershelfbookclub.com. Now, Lois's background became important when Doug Thompson employed the insanity defense. The trial would have two phases. One, deciding the not guilty defense, and then two, if that failed, the mental illness defense. Dr. Garvey's reports were important, as were Lois's hospitalization records, going back to the 1951 admission to the Mayo Clinic. There, Lois told Dr. Goldstein that her father was an alcoholic, just brutal towards her mother and the children. She'd left home at 15 because her drunk father beat her mother. Was this after he drunkenly raped Lois, I wonder? Dr. Goldstein's prognosis, quote, a 26-year-old woman with long-standing psychoneurosis of the mixed type. She may go on to a paranoid schizophrenia, end quote. Similar psychiatric letters were written in 1952, 54, and 1955, where the Mayo Clinic told the Bureau of Catholic Charities that Lois was a poor candidate for motherhood and adopting a child. Clayton Robinson was simply sick to his stomach reading this. They had known. They had known all along. Lois now met with psychiatrists for the defense and prosecution, insisting she never abused Dennis, that there was no favoritism, while telling horror stories of her strict parents using brooms on her, withholding food so she had rickets, and her father beating them with a strap. Lois spoke about the flooding basement the weekend Dennis died. Cleaning up, Dennis was on the toilet when she told him to be careful, but he ran and fell. The last time she saw Dennis, he was so quiet she thought he was praying, just lying in his crib. Lois said, quote, 
I put my hand to see if he would follow my hand's movement. I thought he'd gone blind. Then my husband came in. My husband picked Dennis up, shook him in his arms. He was still warm. Then I tried to breathe into his mouth. I could not get him to breathe. And his face started to show psychedelic spots, blue, green, yellow, like when you put glitter dots on his face. My husband called Dr. Peterson. He was fine the night before, end quote. Big, big denial going on here. Lois doesn't actually rationally connect her beating Dennis and striking him hours earlier and then him being okay and dying the next morning. She doesn't get this cause and effect here, which is hampered by denial. Lois also discounted everyone's comments about Dennis being abused, saying, she's not a blood relative. She's crazy as a bed bug. Oh, that's the idiot who lives next door. Had she put a clamp on Dennis's penis? Quote, no, why would I do something like that? People do have wild imaginations. It's all fabrications, end quote. The defense psychiatrist concluded she was psychotic in 1965, suffering from paranoid schizophrenia. The prosecution psychiatrist concluded she was not psychotic, but suffered from a personality disorder, which is closer to what Dr. Teeter and Dr. Garvey had written about Lois years earlier. May 1987, days before the trial, the Washington County Attorney's Office left a message for Mindy and Clayton about some documents. Yeah, well, whatever. They would continue jury selection like you do when you're going to trial. Another message came. This time, it said the Washington County attorney, Dick Arney, quote, has the transcript. He'll wait for you, end quote. The transcript? The transcript. Robert's custody hearing transcript. Dick Arney was emptying an old, unused filing cabinet and ran across the state ex-rel Jurgens versus Bowles. Bowles? Like June Bowles, who Robert was living with at the time. Who would think to look under the name Bowles? But the transcript was found in the nick of time. And what a revelation. Transcript, page 612. Harold Jurgens was asked if he was out of town on Friday before Dennis's death. Harold said he was. Was he home Saturday? Only part of the day. He'd left for Wisconsin on Friday, and Lois was alone with Dennis and Robert. She was the adult in the house without Harold. With this evidence, Harold Jurgens could never take the stand in a trial and had committed perjury before the grand jury. They read near verbatim testimony from Bob Vanderwist, Pete Karolchuk, Lloyd and Donna Zirwas, the neighbors, Lois's sister Donna, the coroner's deputy Steve Patera, doctors testifying at the time from fresh memories. It was divine providence at work. Someone up there was helping. But the find was a double-edged sword. There are also memory lapses in prosecution witnesses, too. Right, so for example, Lois's sister Bev, she had been speaking with Ron Meehan in recent months, and she confirmed Dennis wearing sunglasses to hide black eyes, torn ears, Dennis tied to the crib, corroborating a lot of the other testimony. But the 1965 transcript showed 
that Bev had been more helpful to Lois. Had Lois tied Dennis's legs to the crib? Yes, but to keep him from falling, there was nothing unusual there. Had she seen mistreatment? Bev issued a flat-out no. Lois was a good mother in her opinion. When asked about these two very different accounts, Bev said that today's version was the truth. She belonged to a family that sticks together, and they had in 1965. Bev was still willing to testify, and that was good enough for Mindy and Clayton. May 12, 1987, the trial began before Judge David Marston in a courthouse built in the 1930s with a manual elevator and Art Deco light fixtures. The prosecution began with photos of a sparkling, lively Dennis at one years old when he was adopted by the Jurgens, and then his photo at autopsy, emaciated and riddled with bruises. The defense began with the admission that Lois was a terrible, unlikable person who never should have adopted a child. But abusing Dennis does not mean Lois is a murderer. Clayton Robinson delved into Bev's change of testimony from 65 to present, and she admitted she committed perjury back in 1965. While since no one admits to perjury, Clayton was confident that the jury would believe Bev. Donna Zerwis testified, distraught that she had not called the authorities at the time. Barbara, a childhood friend of Lois's niece, had been threatened the night before her testimony when Azerwa's nephew drove up along her car, waving what proved to be a toy gun at her. Barbara testified that she saw the ringlet of roses placed on Dennis's head to cover up bruises. When shown an autopsy report of Dennis, Barbara could barely speak. Dr. Peterson, Dr. Votel, Jereen Park, Father Reiser, Jim Hansa, all testified factually for the prosecution. Doug Thomas attacked during cross-examination, which caused Mindy Elledge's temper to flare, as Clayton Robinson waxed eloquently. Unfortunately, Pete Karlchek suffered a heart attack, meaning that Bob Vanderwist, nearly incapacitated with cancer, needed to testify. And he did. While they tap-danced around hearsay rules when they got to Jerome Zerwas's interference, under the law, the witness can only recount the defendant's words, and Jerome was not the defendant. But this is an important point, because Bob Vanderwist stopped the investigation, and the jury needed to understand why without Mindy asking. So Bob revealed he had gone to Police Chief Wayne Anderson about Lieutenant Jerome Zerwas's interference and was told by the chief that the investigation was over. The star witness was Robert Jurgens, the boyish-looking 27-year-old police officer told the court everything he remembered. The good times playing with Dennis and Lois interrupting this, grabbing Dennis, quote, by the ears, putting his head under the water, bringing it up, putting it under, bringing it up. He was there for a while. It was more like three times. He was crying at first, but then he was overcome trying to breathe. I was terrified. I didn't know what to do. It was a terrible sight, end quote. He recounted Dennis falling down the stairs, landing hard, Lois racing down, hollering at Dennis, picking him up, hitting him, shaking him, while Dennis cried, hurt, as Robert rode his tricycle. 
The night Dennis died, Robert spoke of waking up, hearing screams, going into Dennis's room, his mother shaking, a limp, unmoving Dennis, yelling at him with no response, slapping Dennis on the back, Lois yelling, Harold, get in here. The courtroom was eerily silent as Robert spoke, finally breaking down crying. When asked why Robert was coming forward now, he explained that he cherished his mother. He did exactly as she directed, picked up, ate his food, and went to play. Dennis wasn't so compliant, and he was given, quote, more traumatic reprimands. I have always wondered, and I've never had any answers. And after he passed away, I didn't have a brother anymore. And I just think I kind of owe it to him, end quote. On cross, Thompson asked Robert, quote, you think your mother caused Dennis's death, don't you? End quote. Softly, Robert responded, yes, he did. Medical examiner Dr. Michael McGee testified that a blow to the abdomen caused peritonitis in Dennis's death. If the time of death was at 9.30 a.m. on Palm Sunday, this window of occurrence began at 9.30 a.m. Friday, three hours after Harold left for Wisconsin. Could a fall down the stairs do this? No, it could not, McGee told the jury. The final witness was June Bull confirming that Harold had told her he wasn't there when Dennis died. Doug Thompson really had little, to be honest. The court transcript would reveal Harold as a perjurer, something juries tend to dislike. Yeah. So without presenting evidence of his own, the defense rested to a huge gasp in the courtroom. Oh, the four Howerton kids, Renee, Grant, Mike, and Ricky, did not testify at trial. Although the jury was told that seven years after Dennis's death, they had adopted four other children who wound up living at June Bowles' home. The abuse of the Howertons was considered irrelevant to the murder trial. But I just got to tell you, I would want to know if I was a juror. So three hours later, after debate about whether there was or was not intention, the verdict was delivered. Jerry Sherwood clung to her daughter and son. Quote, we, the jury, find the defendant not guilty of the charge of murder in the second degree, end quote, with Jerry slumping, but then came, quote, guilty of the charge of murder in the third, end quote. Whooping, cheering, hugging commenced as Judge Marsden ordered restraint. Jerry Sherwood told reporters, quote, we did it. Justice was finally served after 22 years. Danny can rest in peace now, end quote. Robert Jurgen stood alone, crying quietly in a corner. Oh, that poor guy. Well, this is a tough one. Okay, I'm okay. Released on bail, phase two of the trial would begin now. Deciding, was Lois sane? After a week of testimony with psychologists and psychiatrists debating Lois's mental health, the jury spent five hours deliberating. Verdict number two, Lois Jurgens was sane and guilty of murder in the third. Judge Marsden sentenced Lois Jurgens to an undetermined period ranged up to 25 years, the penalty specified under the law in 1965. 
Three months after the verdict, Robert joined Ron, Greg, Mindy, Clayton, people he described as his best friends, when he presented his own appreciation plaque to them, quote, in loving memory of Dennis Craig Jurgens, we met you in a picture and loved you from the start. Our special dedication was you within our hearts. The final curtain closed now, and we know you're standing tall. Rest in peace now, Dennis. Your memory's with us all. End quote. Mian got Robert in a bear hug, who murmured to the investigator, quote, I have no family now. End quote. In May 1988, the Minnesota Court of Appeals upheld Lois Durgin's conviction by a two-to-one vote, referencing State versus Los as president, writing, quote, that the evidence didn't establish how the fatal trauma was inflicted, but in a case where the battered child syndrome is established, the state need not show specific circumstances of injury causing death, end quote. It just got easier to prove battered child syndrome. The Minnesota Supreme Court declined to review the case. Shortly thereafter, the State Corrections Department determined that Lois would serve a minimum of eight years. Now, Jerome Zerwes' role in all this did not go unnoticed. The Minnesota Court of Appeals decision wrote that there was, quote, evidence of interference in the 1965 investigation of Dennis's death by Jurgen's brother, White Bear Lake Police Lieutenant Jerome Zerwas, end quote. The community of White Bear Lake also took note. Once, Jerome socialized with his former police buddies, including Ron Meehan, and attended the annual Christmas parties. Now he was shunned. In 1988, Jerome filed a $50,000 personal injury lawsuit against Robert Vanderwist and the city of White Bear Lake claiming Bob's public statements about him were false and malice, and Bob, with three months left to live, was devastated. That Jerome avoided prosecution wasn't enough. His reputation had been tarnished. Well, that same 1965 custody transcript crushed Jerome Zeros' lawsuit. His own lawyer pointed out where family members discussed the abuse of Dennis with Jerome and other statements by Jerome that contradicted his claims now. He insisted the transcript was wrong and that they'd mixed up his testimony with another officer's. Really, what a putz. Just like his sister, he cannot admit being wrong. So what happened in the Jurgens' home? Lois clearly had good intentions. She wanted a home, a family, to give her children the life she never had as a child. Music, sports, toys, to raise good kids, well-behaved kids, devout Catholic kids. And the more this dream eluded her, the more she was going to force it to happen. Children could be taught to behave just as she wanted, which shifted to he will behave. I will make him behave. It's for his own good, twisting into something dark, rigid, and malicious which ensured that Lois's dream would never happen. Frustrations rising, depression increasing, repeating the cycle of abuse inflicted upon her as a kid. Now, Lois has a number of psychological issues, including the personality disorders, which all created a perfect 
Storm, Lois, the unfit mother of the year. Deluding herself, she thought she was doing right by the children, and she could never admit she was wrong, as several psychologists noted. 30 years after the book was published, author Barry Siegel gave an interview to Matt McMillan from White Bear Press. And Siegel explained the longevity of the death in White Bear Lake with the theme, How Society Evolved. Barry said, quote, No new evidence was really discovered about Dennis Jurgen's death between 1965 and 1987. It was just that they reopened the file all those years later and we saw it differently, end quote. His book helped us as a national community to see child abuse and endeavor to stop it. We still strive for this. 600,000 kids are hurt in the U.S. every year, and that is just unacceptable. Societal changes slow to manifest. It took time for the concept of a medical battered child syndrome to filter down to common understanding to alter the norms of silence and denial that were dominant. This has changed. As a teacher, I underwent hours of instruction on identifying and reporting child abuse. We can still do better. Keep our eyes open. We can make a call and report it if we think something is amiss. It is better to have a false alarm than another Dennis Jurgens. So please, if you see something, say something. Love does not hurt. And as a cycle, it will repeat unless there is lengthy and major psychological intervention. More of Dennis's legacy. In 1987, a new Minnesota law dedicated to Dennis's memory was passed. If an adopted child dies or is terminally ill, the birth mother will be notified. No more Jerry Sherwoods receiving shocking, cold, and personal letters decades later. And what happened to Lois and Harold? Well, in prison, an increasingly bad need began to plague Lois and interfere with Harold's faithful visits to see his wife because she couldn't walk to the visitor area. Doug Thompson told the Star Tribune that Lois had no other visitors and, quote, ultimately learned to cope with prison life but she certainly wasn't enchanted with going there, end quote. In early June 1995, at age 69, after serving eight years, Lois Jurgens was released from the Shakopee Women's Prison. One of the conditions of her parole was a prohibition against all contact with a child younger than 13 years. Good. When the APNnews.com contacted Jerry Sherwood about Lois's release, she was very angry. Eight years was just not enough. Doug Thompson explained that if Lois had been convicted back in 1965, she would likely have served three years, given the sentencing guidelines back then. And Lois went on to live a secluded life in Stillwater, Minnesota. Harold Jurgens died five years later, in 2000, and it was under suspicious circumstances. Harold had a history of heart problems and had been in failing health. But the Stillwater Police Department received an anonymous tip suggesting Harold may have been poisoned. Now, medical records show there was evidence of unusual chemicals in Harold's system. Upset, Lois told neighbors Jim and Ruth Marcinac that she loved Harold, 
that he was all she had left, and she certainly hadn't tried to kill him. Later, Stillwater Sheriff Jim Frank reported that a more detailed toxicology report showed no arsenic or poison in Harold's hair, urine, or blood, and it appeared his cause of death was, in fact, heart disease. What a weird twist. On Lois's release in 95, a journalist from the Star Tribune of Minneapolis, Howard Green, wrote a scathing editorial reflecting on the legacy of the Jurgens case. Quote, in the end, it must be remembered that the single extraordinary thing about the Jurgens case is that it took 22 years to come to trial. It was the time lag, not the crime, that made so many of us pay attention. Crimes against kids were commonplace in 1965. They're commonplace today. End quote. So, in 2019, the national numbers of child abuse victims was 665,000, dropping by 38,000 in 2020, which is an improvement. This 2020 data shows 76% of victims were neglected, 16% physically abused, 9% sexually abused. Child fatalities also decreased from 1,830 to 1,750. Did this hold during the pandemic with children locked down at home in 2021? Preliminary data suggests it did not. A study of 39,000 school-aged kids five years old and up, so in school, shows that physical abuse tripled during the first months of the lockdown from 36 to 103 cases coming from nine major trauma centers reporting. U.S. News quoted Dr. Allison Jackson from Washington, D.C.'s Children's National Hospital as saying, quote, stressful situations can be a trigger for poor judgment and impulsive reactions. There is a great deal of economic stress, job insecurity, and loss of housing potential during this time frame, along with the closing of schools, which can be a reprieve for parents and kids, end quote. Jackson's analysis does make sense. Another study author, Dr. Andrea Asnes, pointed out that during the lockdown, quote, daycare centers for little kids were considered essential and remained open, which allowed some families to function, but older kids were stuck at home, end quote. The final conclusion on this question is not in, however. Some studies do not show an increase in maltreatment, and I hope they're correct. But if you know a child or anyone at risk, please, please, please tell someone. The links are on my blog for more information. And that concludes my series on a death in White Bear Lake by Barry Siegel. And my next book choice is The Midnight Assassin. Panic, Scandal, and the Hunt for America's First Serial Killer by Skip Hollinsworth. I cannot wait. We talked about this book in episode one way back then. Set in the late 1800s, Austin, Texas was shifting from an isolated Western outpost into a metropolis. But terror came to Austin in December 1884 
someone far more diabolical than London's infamous Jack the Ripper. For almost a year, the Midnight Assassin struck on moonlit nights using axe, knives, long steel rods to rip apart women from every race and class. At the time, the concept of serial killer was unknown, but this is what was happening as the killer became more brazen and the citizens' panic reached a fevered pitch. An utterly terrifying true crime story I had never heard before. I always say read the book, and this is no exception. Thank you for listening. You can email me at jill at murdershelfbookclub.com or find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Check out my blog and merch store on Spreadshop. The holiday designs are out. Happy reading, murder bookies. Source material, show notes, lots of photographs, snack and drink information for the Death in White Bear Lake trilogy is found on my blog, www.murdershelfbookclub.com. Written and produced by Jill, all rights reserved.